welcome to the Bent Biblios podcast, where we chat with authors, book lovers, and each other about books, trends, writing, and so much more. I'm Tegan. And I'm Ashley. We are so excited to spend this time with you and to be a part of such an inclusive and incredible community. We are here today with best-selling author Jill Paul. Jill has written a number of historical novels which have reached the top of the USA Today and Globe and Mail bestseller lists. Jill studied medicine at Glasgow University, then English literature and history before working in publishing. Today, we will be discussing her most recent work, The Manhattan Girls. Jill, welcome. We're so excited to have you back on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Ashley and Tegan. I'm very excited to be here. So before we begin chatting about your novel, can you share a little bit about yourself for our first-time listeners? And can you tell us what is new since the last time we talked? Aha. Uh-huh. Well, I've written, I've now written 12 historical novels, and I tend to include real historical characters, either in bit parts or as the main protagonists in the story. Um, as in this one we're about to talk about. I'm currently on a contract where I write a book a year, which is pretty tough because I do a lot of research for each of the books. But I always try and plan it so that I deliver a book at the end of June, which I have done this year. And then I've got the summer to just do some reading and research for the next one. It means I can basically go out, sit under a tree somewhere, read a book and call it work, <laughs> which I wouldn't, is a great way to earn a living. I'm not complaining for a second. Yeah, I would. Uh... I would love that to read. Um, I've always loved the research aspect. It's yeah, nice only for three of... months. So, and then October, I've got to sit down and write the next ones. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so moving on to your new novel, for our readers who may not have read the Manhattan Girls yet, can you tell us what it is about? It's set in 1921 in Manhattan when four women decided to start a bridge group. Now, one of these women, Dorothy Parker, was already very famous. The other three weren't yet, but they would go on to achieve great things in the next decade. And I just couldn't resist writing about their friendship, about the period, you know, with prohibition and jazz and speakeasies and gangsters, and um, also all the new freedoms that women had that their mother's generation hadn't had. So all these things, plus I'm a huge lifelong fan of Dorothy Parker. So I had to write this novel. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a really interesting time of a lot of change, particularly for women. Absolutely. I mean, they could have Each of my four women had fulfilling careers, which they directed themselves. They rented apartments. They could drive cars. Well, not Dorothy. I wouldn't ever put her in charge of a car. But uh, they had so much. They were earning their own money and had so much more control over their own lives than the previous generation or even 10 years earlier. Um, But with that kind of freedom comes a lot of difficulty as well. And men maybe hadn't moved on quite so much in their thinking. So there's a lot of men behaving badly in my novel, I'm afraid. So you touched on it a little bit, but what inspired you to write Dottie Jane, Peggy and Winifred's stories? I love writing about women's friendships. There's always relationships between women in all my novels. And it was just this throwaway sentence. There's a great biography of Dorothy Parker by um, Marion Mead called What What Fresh Hell Is This? Um, and uh, there's a, a line in which she mentions that they those four women started a bridge group. And for me, that was just the point at which I dived in and started to imagine what their relationships might have been like and what they were each like as people. So in the novel, I tell it chapter about from each woman's point of view and um, 
try and get the stories to feed into and link up with each other. So it was great fun. To, I really had so much fun writing this one. So I'm going to be honest, I didn't know about the Vicious Circle or the, the members in that Algonquin roundtable. And they were a group of influential New York City writers, critics, actors, and wits. So prior to preparing for this novel, how familiar were you with the Vicious Circle's writings and contributions? And could you provide context for our listeners who may not have heard of them before, how influential they were in the 1920s? So... The Vicious Circle wasn't called that then. It started in 1919 as a joke when Alec Woolcott was coming back. For, he was a theatre critic at the time and he was coming back from France and they decided to hold a welcome home party for him. But they, they said so they got a room in the Algonquin and they put up lots of signs with his name spelt differently. And it was kind of a joke. Um, and lots of journalists, critics, columnists came along and it went so well that they started meeting there regularly and they sat around this table, they were moved from the pergola room to the rose room so, so that there was enough space. And they sat around this table from basically 12 noon, most of the afternoon, um, making wisecracks, um, which because they were columnists, they reported each other's comments in their column the next morning, which is why they became famous. As Dorothy Parker pointed out later in life when she was asked about it, there were really great writers around in that period. There was Hemingway, there was Fitzgerald, there was Ring Lardner. Uh, none, of, none of these men went on to remain particularly famous later. They were only famous because they were self-aggrandizing each other. They were building each other up by reporting in their columns. But um, what was it Dottie said? She described them as just a bunch of loudmouths showing off. <laughs> and I sort of think that's probably true. I really enjoyed reading about them and reading those scenes in the Algonquin because they were funny, but sometimes they could, they could be pretty cutting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, you know, you wouldn't, you didn't want to leave the room for a second or somebody would stab you in the back while you were gone. Right. Yeah. So all four women are so different from one another. We've got Dorothy, the writer and renowned wit, Winifred, a Broadway actress, Jane, the first female journalist for the New York Times, and Peggy, a magazine assistant and budding novelist. What is it that not only drew them together, but kept them friends throughout the years? Okay, first of all, I have to confess that there's not much in print about their friendship. There's that sentence in Marion Mead's biography and also in a, a memoir that Jane Grant wrote. She mentions it as well. I have no idea how long they continued playing bridge together, whether they played much bridge at all. And... Um, Dottie did have a tendency to fall out with all her friends at one time or another, but I hope that it at least lasted the decade. Of course, in the 1930s, Dorothy went off to Hollywood and became a screenwriter. Um, but I've always wished for Dorothy Parker that she did have a good bunch of women friends because that's exactly what she needed. In fact, we're probably told that Bob Benchley, um, the journalist who went on to be a screenwriter as well, that he was her closest friend, but she desperately needed women around her. And it also occurred to me that in a, in a female friendship group, you've usually got four different types and there's loads of dramas that do this, like Sex in the City or, you know, any of these female buddy movies, there's different types. And these four characters in my novel seem to be, you know, we've got Peggy, who's the caretaker. She looks after everyone. We've got Jane, who's the real bossy organising type. We've got Dottie, who's the chaotic type. And Winifred, who's just gentle and, and lovely to everyone. So it's 
you know, in a friendship group, you need a dynamic with everybody contributing something a little bit different. And it seemed to me that these four women had that, but that's just my imagination. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely um, how we would want to imagine it, right? That close-knit group of friends. It's Mm. just awesome. So Dorothy Parker or Dottie is such an interesting figure known primarily for her acerbic wit. You develop her character further to explore the more tragic aspects of her life. In your acknowledgments, you mentioned your long fascination with her. Dottie has been portrayed in film and television, as well as other books over the years. As you researched and fleshed out her character for your own novel, how did you find your pre-book perception of Dorothy and her life changing at all? Like, how did she evolve for you? I always knew she was this wonderful wit and wordsmith. Um, And even, you know, the lesser short stories, when you read them, they're fantastic. They're so well observed and there's just not a spare word anywhere. I also knew, I mean, because I've been fascinated by her for a long, long time, um, I knew that she was very fragile. I knew there had been suicide attempts. So I was aware of these two sides of her. What I hadn't quite taken on board until I still started really digging down was quite how much she was drinking. Now she started the 1920s, she started prohibition, not really caring that much about alcohol, not liking the taste particularly. She could have one gin daisy she liked then and make it last all evening. And gradually through the decade, this was creeping up and she was having hangovers. And, you know, it was partly the breakdown of her first marriage that with her alcoholic husband that kind of pushed her into it but it was a place that she was quite happy to be and she continued drinking heavily for the rest of her life so um, that was something that I learned about her and also you realize that although she's got this fragile front she must have had a real core of steel as well to achieve everything that she did achieve despite the problems that she was up against despite the very difficult childhood she'd had and um you know, the alcohol she was consuming, which at that time was more or less pure ethanol (laughs) made in somebody's bathtub. So yeah, I think she was stronger perhaps than she's sometimes portrayed. I didn't know anything about Dorothy Parker before reading your book. And now I'm, I'm intrigued. So I'm definitely going to look up that biography that you mentioned and the short stories you know there's the well-known ones like big blonde but even just little stories there's a it's a tiny turning point moment in in her character's lives and she captures it perfectly it's a real window into that era I'll definitely have to look those up too then Hmm. so the characters in this book are also vibrant complex and interesting which character do you identify with most And which character would you most like to co-host a party with? (laughs) Such a great question. Um, I suppose I'm, you know, if we're talking about types in a friendship group, I'm the kind of Peggy type because I write novels. I really like observing other people's relationships and the dynamic of what works and doesn't work. And that's part and parcel of being a novelist. And uh, yeah, I kind of look out for my friends a bit. So probably Peggy's closest to me. But in terms of co-hosting a party, I would say any of them except Dorothy, because she would have turned up. She wouldn't have done any of the work. She'd have turned up drunk at 4 a.m., bringing a handful of other people with her. And she'd have been useless as a co-host. But any of the other three would have been great. (laughs) See, I'm like... Ashley will start nodding her head. Like I'm not the most organized person. Like I really have to work hard to be organized and I do my best in my day job, but like at home, everything's last minute procrastination. So I would want Jane. 
Yeah. She'd be like, on my <laughs> Jane would sort you out. Yeah. Yeah. She would. <laughs> like How Jane. about you, Ashley? Who would you co-host a party with? I don't know. Probably Peggy because she's so laid back because I am so type A that I mm. think anyone else I would just be a nightmare to. <laughs> Peggy's laid back and she could she could rustle up a load of canapes really quickly for you. So right. She's a good choice. <laughs> Absolutely. So the character of Alec Volcott, he infuriated me. So well done. <laughs> um, I realize this is your fictional version of the real critic mm-hmm. and commentator and that in order to create a three-dimensional character, you'd have to expand beyond the known. Um, during the writing process, how did you navigate respecting the historical figure and developing a more complex character? It's possible that I've um, been a bit mean to Alec, but I'm just judging by what other people said about him, including Jane's memoir um, about the founding of the um, New Yorker with that she and her husband. And um, yeah, but I hope I've hinted. I mean, you, obviously he's a minor character in the book and you can't flesh out all your minor characters completely. But I have hinted, I hope, that he has a very conflicted sexuality that um, although he sounds unpleasant and bitchy, you never, he has crushes on women, but he never actually has a sex life or a romantic life of any type. And it's as if there's some kind of problem, something he's hiding that he can't be himself. And obviously that'd be a whole different novel to go into all that, but it comes out, all the repression in him comes out as a kind of bitchiness against the others at the Algonquin. I mean, he was also very funny. I think um, he said that a lot of the wittiest things he's ever said were attributed to Dorothy. And I think that was the case. Anything funny that anybody said at that table was reported as being by her. (laughs) He was a really interesting character. I'd like to read more about him as Mm. well. So while we were chatting about creating characters, there is a passage from the novel where Winifred is talking about being an actress. And she says, don't get me wrong. I adore acting. It's a thrill stepping into someone else's skin and inhabiting your character's life. Does this mirror how you feel about writing your characters? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's such a weird job, when, especially when you're writing about real historical characters, because I come to my desk in the morning and have to pretend to be them, I suppose in some sense like an actor, but I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like to be there in their position in that era. And then you have to take on board what the era was like, you know, whether they're religious, uh, you know, in history, people were a lot more influenced by religion than they are now and uh, how, what kind of education they had, and then just try and guess how they might have felt. I mean, what I found with these four women is that things haven't changed that much in a hundred years. You know, they're facing a lot of problems that we still face now, but nowadays we can speak out more about despicable men and and whatever comes up whereas they just kind of had to put up with it to an extent but they had the same problems yeah yeah I find that's usually the case when I read historical novels is that I go it's still extremely relatable like I can put Mm. myself in the different scenarios like if there's you know they're having a disagreement I'm like well disagreements with your spouse haven't changed over the years <laughs> at all like extremely relatable or you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um financial stress and and you know speaking up when you're feeling powerless in certain situations because of yeah. your you know um you're a woman or you're mm-hmm. diverse or you know it's just uh 
that's what I realized. I'm like, yeah, we've come so far, but at the same time, like we're, we're basically the same (laughs) as we've always been. Um, So when discussing potential new acting projects, Winifred mentions not wanting to get typecast. And I started thinking about how much authors may or may not struggle with being pigeonholed in their writing. So how do you manage the potential of being typecast in your work in order to keep writing exciting and challenging for you? Uh huh. Well, publishers do like their authors to have a kind of a brand. And I suppose my brand at the moment is writing historical novels that include real historical characters in them, which is, which is a brand that I don't mind at all, because that's the kind of book that I want to read. So I'm quite happy to be writing it. But I keep it fresh and interesting for myself and much more hard work for myself because I jump around from period to period. I'm not doing a trilogy where I've, I just have to do the research once and then write three different stories in the same period. I mean, I jump from country to country and period to period. I mean, all in the 20th century, and I suppose the first half, mostly Oh, no, I go up to 1970s in Jackie and Maria's, but uh, and I have gone back as early as the 1850s. Um, but every single novel I start, I'm doing a completely new set of research. And I do give myself some massive challenges in the research. Um, the Lost Daughter was, was a real case in point because I had to get through the whole of Russian 20th century history <laughs> to, to write that novel and then make it entertaining and fun and just have, you know, Obviously, that's not all in there, but I need to know it in order to write about it. So, yeah, I do jump around. So every novel is a complete new challenge, not just because of the research, though. It's you start out with an idea in your head and a little panicky feeling. Can I actually make this work? Because you've got to come up with a gripping idea and get your reader to invest in it and keep hold of them so that they're not going to walk away at page 50 or page 100. Um, So that's something that you have to judge and then you have to bring it to a conclusion that feels satisfying. So it's, it's kind of scary. And there's moments when you're writing, think, Oh my God, can I make this one work? So it never feels stale. Every novel has its own challenges. And also, I mean, I feel very strongly that, There's no point in keeping going if I can't try and improve a little bit each time. So I'll always try and have some kind of new challenge for myself in there. This was the first time I'd written with four um, points of view, for example. But that was it just this turned out to be a really I won't say easy one to write, but it just all seemed to come together quite easily. So it was very enjoyable. (laughs) They always come together for you, Jill. They always come oh, together. For some you. are harder than others. I won't <laughs> tell you which ones were harder, but some are definitely harder than others. That kind of leads into my next question. So we chatted about your research process for The Collector's Daughter the last time we talked. What did your research process for this book look like? And how did it differ from the research process for some of your other novels? There was a different research process for each of the four characters to find out everything I could about them and and quite different routes. So obviously with Dorothy Parker, there are several biographies and she's written about a lot in books about the Algonquin crowd as a whole. And there's all her own writing. Now, three of three of my characters in the book were writers, so I could read words that they'd written. When it comes to Jane Grant, she wrote a memoir, as I mentioned, of this era. It's called... um, 
Ross, the New Yorker, and me about her hus- her struggle with her husband to start the New Yorker. But um, it's much wider, Alex, in there, and um, how she met up with them all in France. And I get a real sense of, you know, she was a Kansas girl who called a spade a spade and um, just got on with things. And I got a real sense of her character coming through. With Peggy, um, there weren't any biographies, but she wrote three novels in the 1920s. And these are novels about relationships and they're actually they're really good I mean they're dated um they're of their time they're not quite Edith Wharton but they're in the same kind of vein and I really enjoyed them and I formed my picture of what Peggy is like from that now Winifred I knew virtually nothing about there's a Wikipedia page with the basic facts so I knew that she starred, she had a huge hit as the star of George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan. And then she kind of dropped out of acting and she moved into directing and other roles. And she started working on radio plays in the 1930s. And I thought, why on earth did she do that? So I talked to a couple of actress friends about this. And we watched, um, you know, we read all the reviews that she'd had. I can I can tell what kind of actress she was. I think she was very immersive in her parts. Um, she really transformed when she stepped onto the stage, as Joan, all the reviewers said. But she wanted more control. She didn't want to be standing there having a director tell her, you know, lift your skirt or bend over or whatever it is they're telling her to do. I think she wanted more power in her career. And so that's the way I've written her. And, and most of what... The plot that I've made up for Winifred is invented because there wasn't so much, but I've worked around the facts that I knew. So it was completely different research process for each of them. That would keep it fresh too for each novel because yeah. like you said, they're all different time periods. They're all so different. So it'd be so exciting to learn about so many new people, but you're sending me down a lot of rabbit holes, Jill. Like <laughs> I can't tell you how many hours I've spent researching the people that I've read about in your book because I didn't know they existed before. <laughs> uh-huh. So this novel, as you stated, takes place through the 1920s in New York. It's an exciting and fascinating period. So many changes were happening at this time and prohibition and speakeasies are one of the things that first pop into my mind. Prohibition is so interesting to me. It seemed to do the exact opposite of what it intended to do. And people really had to get creative in making or procuring their own alcohol. So I have two questions for you here. First, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the term, can you explain a bit about what prohibition was? And second, what facts about prohibition shocked you the most during your research? (laughs) Um, So in response to campaigning by the temperance movement, various different temperance movements, in um, 1919, the 18th Amendment, the U.S. Constitution was passed, which banned the manufacture, the transportation and the sale of intoxicating liquor. And it came into effect in um, January 1920. So you were still allowed to to drink that liquor, but you weren't allowed to buy it or transport it. And it was a very confusing law and it was never properly Um, enforced. You know, there weren't enough prohibition agents to make sure it was enforced at all. So, you know, in a free thinking city like New York in particular, people just became ingenious about ways of getting their own booze. And and, uh, certain gangsters um, became ingenious as bootleggers and made their fortunes. So, you know, as you said, it, it kind of had the reverse effect to what was intended. Arrests for drunkenness, public drunkenness, went up what they had been before 
alcohol was prohibited. Um, these um, gangsters that, you know, the, the temperance movement thought that were around the alcohol movement, they, be, they, they became so rich from it. And, um, you know, it started, it laid the foundations for the big organized crime families of the 20th century, um, that all these people had so much money. So um, the other thing it did, it turned law-abiding normal citizens into criminals. And, um, you know, once, and, you know, once you've ignored one law by sneaking in lots of bottles of Hague and Hague for your dinner party, then maybe you go on and you just think, oh, I'll just break a couple more laws. So it's a really bad thing in society to have a law like that, that they can't enforce and that people are not going to respect. So as a social experiment, it was a big learning curve, certainly. Kind of reminds me a little bit of like what I'm, I've seen on like TikTok and Instagram posts where people bring their dogs onto a subway, but they're not supposed to have them on the ground. They're supposed to be able to, they have to be small enough to be carried, but then they're getting these really like interesting way, creative ways of carrying their dog, like this massive, like, dog, oh, like a little like bag that has like the legs cut out so they can have their dog on. Like people yes. will always find out ways if the rules are silly. Yeah, they'll, they'll, find they'll always out. find a way around it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> crazy. Right, it's great for inspiring creativity, right? Um, <laughs> so let's talk more about speakeasies and illicit booze for a second longer. Um, like Ashley, I also de- went down a rabbit hole of research, and I was looking up Arnold Rothstein. He is so fascinating. He did a lot of. <laughs> questionable things but he was very fascinating in terms of that time period and who he kind of took under his wing and mm-hmm. trained and so after Jane meets the famous crime boss and racketeer it made me just I just looked up all of these different people and I I'm just glad I stopped had to stop myself mm-hmm. for a little I was like okay I need to actually get this outline to Ashley so I <laughs> I stopped <laughs> So what interesting bits about these famous gangsters and bootleggers didn't make it into the novel? Oh, loads. I mean, I think they just must have been very terrifying people personally. You know, the kind that, you know, they make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Um, They've only got cameos in my novel, so I haven't really attempted to go into any depth about them. But Arnold Rothstein was incredibly wealthy already. He was a millionaire in this period, in a time when, being a millionaire meant you really, really had a lot of money. Um, he's said to have fixed the World Series in 1919 by getting was it the Red Sox to throw the game. He certainly was involved in race horse race fixing, um, where you know he arranged that a jockey was going to throw a race and he put lots of money on the favourite that he wanted to win. Um, he uh, he was married, but he dated lots of showgirls and actresses. So when I had him chasing after Winifred, that certainly was something that he was doing in that period. And um, yeah, and he died in 1928 over an unpaid gambling debt. He'd been in a high stakes poker game and refused to pay up at the end because he thought the game was fixed. And uh, yeah, didn't get away with it. This was the another problem with prohibition was that when the um, amendment was overturned and you could drink again, all these bootleggers had to find another way to earn a living. So, of course, these they went into narcotics and prostitution and different ways that they could 
you know, continue to keep up their earnings, um, but they were nudging up against each other's territories. So there was quite a lot of intergang organised crime warfare after the end of Prohibition, which once again, I'm sure was not the result that the temperance movement were hoping for. <laughs> yeah, uh, good intentions, I suppose, didn't really <laughs> go the way they wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I think of a flapper, I'm not going to lie to you, I usually think of really bad Halloween costumes and like <laughs> the great Gatsby's, Daisy Buchanan. Um, however, as a subculture, they represented a different mindset and way of life for women. They had so many more freedoms due to automobiles, contraception, and previously unavailable career opportunities. And as stated in the novel, women were on the cusp of change, partly because of the war, partly because more of us were working. And it means we were inventing new rules as we go along. Based on your research, how do you think Dottie felt about flappers and how do you think they should be understood today? I don't think she ever used the term. I mean, flapper was a derogatory term used by the older generation who were scandalized by these women whose hemlines kept creeping upwards and who went out dancing and drinking and smoking, women smoking. What a shock to the older generation. Um, I don't think Dorothy would have considered herself a flapper particularly. At the beginning of the 1920s, she was a married woman um, and she was already in her mid-twenties, although she did go out dancing and drinking and smoking and all these things, it's probably not a label that she would particularly have applied to herself, I don't think. But um, they're kind of a symbol of freedom that, you know, the fashion, actually, I really like the fashions. There's a lot of cheap imitations now. I know exactly what you're talking about, that you can get these things with big long fringes. But the original dresses with minute beading all over them. I've actually got um, an original 1920s headdress with feathers and um, I've got a fringe dress, which I may be wearing for, um, I'm doing a virtual launch party event. So I may be forced to wear my 1920s gear for that. We'll see. The fashion was wonderful. It was really, I mean, it was a big, big change from, you know, the corsets and the bustles and the big baggy dresses that they were wearing before but it, and it's just a symbol it was interesting to me also that it was happening quite it was also happening in London but in Paris they were they were ahead they'd been wearing makeup longer than the Americans that women had been smoking longer and going out night clubbing so yeah it was kind of a movement and they were just part of it I love the fashion too. And I love how by looking at the fashion, you can tell a lot about that time period or how the people live just by looking at what they wore. Sometimes I think it's such an undervalued resource just to, it's, and it's an art form, like a lot of those mm. dresses and some of the flappers get the intricate beading, the time that oh, would have gone into that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I've got tons of books on my shelves here with, um, you know, fashion. So I can look at a particular year and see what was in for that particular year and what was new, what the designers were introducing, what they were showing at their shows. It's one of the books I use the most, I think. So we touched on some of the harder topics that were explored in the book a little bit, but there are some heavy and very important issues explored throughout the novel. Alcoholism, infidelity, abortion, suicide. These topics can be hard to write about realistically and respectfully. You execute this perfectly, not only exploring these issues in real and respectful ways, but also depicting the complexity and gray area surrounding these things. 
You humanized these situations and really showed the raw emotions that people feel. What are the challenges of writing tough topics and why do you feel it is so important to do so? Oh, thank you for that. I hope, I'm glad you think it works. Um, I think it's really important that we do keep addressing these topics in, you know, the current age where abortion is yet again under discussion in the States, where I don't know if it's true in America, certainly in Britain, the suicide um, rate is rising, particularly amongst young men. Um, alcoholism is, is around as much as it ever has been. And we have to keep discussing these things. They're just part of society. I'm When I introduce them in my novel, I'm not making any moral judgments at all on anybody who does any of these things. Um, what I'm trying to do is to get inside my characters' heads in the era and think about how they would have been feeling about it. And um, for Dorothy to have an abortion at that time, and she was brought up Catholic as well, remember, um, it's it, it would be kind of very devastating, I think, more so perhaps than Oh, well, no, I think it's devastating for women at any time that to have to make that decision. And I just wanted to try and figure out what she might have been thinking when she did that. That was one of the goals of the novel. Um, and the alcoholism thing, as I said, that was one of the things that I had to factor in that I hadn't really thought much about in her character before I started writing. But it's clearly there. And particularly when you read biographies on to the end of her life, she was just packing it away big time. Um, so, and when I'm writing from her point of view, it's very hard to write from the point of view of a drunk person or a hungover person. <laughs> that was part of the challenge. But yeah, no, absolutely. Society's got to keep having these conversations and opening those doors and thinking about them for sure. I definitely agree with Ashley. Like you did it all so beautifully and Thank respectfully. You. And I just felt like it was really nuanced um, where, you know, you can understand her perspective and the turmoil and the, just the trauma of mm -hmm. it. Um, but as well, like why she would have perhaps gone to be more of an alcoholic because she just trying to survive. <laughs> and I think a yeah. lot of these people after the, the war too they, they just went through such an experience right sure and that, and some people went through awful experiences in the war and weren't affected in that way I mean alcoholism is a very alcoholism is a very complex issue I think there's definitely a genetic mm -hmm. element some people have more of the addiction gene um there's a lot of theories about childhood trauma mm -hmm. um feeding into alcoholism in later life um, some people just, I don't know, there's so many different reasons. And it, it's something that interests me because I don't know about you, but I know several people who probably are alcoholic and are, or have stopped drinking because they can't mm -hmm. control it. So it's something that yeah. fascinates me. Yeah. And I just, yeah, you treat it with such compassion. Like you always, there. I can feel it when I'm reading. Well, yeah, no, I would never be judgmental yeah. about it. It's an illness. I think it is yeah. an illness. Mm -hmm. rather than a weakness. Yes. 
So you touched on him earlier, uh, Dottie's best friend, Bob Benchley. And at one scene, um, he gives relationship advice to Dottie, telling her to let the man do the chasing. And when she asks, can a gal just be honest about her feelings in this darn town? He warns against being honest. (laughs) And I remember growing up as a teenager reading like Seventeen magazine and trying to figure out if my crush liked me or not and how to attract them. And now we have dating apps where you have to figure out how to market yourself. So my question is, would you rather date during the 1920s or now? I have to say the idea of going on a dating app absolutely horrifies me. I would be so, so bad at it. Um, I don't think I've got my self-esteem is robust enough for the kind of rejection you might get in something like that. But um, fortunately, I've been with the same man for 16 years now. And I always say to him that if we broke up for any reason, I'm not getting, I can't be bothered getting another man. I'd get a dog. And um, yeah, that'd be fine. Companionship, that's all I need. But no, I think these dating apps, and I do have friends that are dating on apps at the moment and and I'm just horrified by the stories of what they go through so yeah no I would much rather um, be dating in the 1920s so long as I could get contraception because it still wasn't that easy and you had to be married and there were only certain places you could go Um, but yeah having said that I think the 1920s you'd get a lot more (laughs) <laughs> not more respect really than swipe right or swipe left or however it works I don't know it's the the app seems so stressful to me like yeah. I've been married for 11 years and I have said the exact same thing to my husband as you just said if anything ever happened I'm out I'll have cats instead of a dog but I'm just gonna be the crazy cat lady in the corner yeah, yeah. enjoying that <laughs> yeah what about you Tegan uh I'm like you I think I would just have a pet um, no. I don't think I want to deal with that. I guess I was leaning towards the 1920s. Like, I think there would be, with a caveat that I'd probably want to be wealthy enough to be have access to, like you said, like contraception yeah. and all those things. I'd want, I'd want to have some of that control to be able to control the narrative a little bit. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, I don't think I want to do apps. Absolutely. I mean, contraception was the game changer for women almost more than getting the vote. I think being able to control your fertility was just absolutely vital in that era. Yeah. And all of that kind of goes perfectly into my next question. So I really enjoyed the exploration of the ups and downs of the marriages and relationships explored throughout this book. They all had such different dynamics and challenges. One of the things that I found particularly interesting to me was the struggle that Dottie was going through in terms of doing what she wanted versus doing what was expected of her in her marriage. In the Mm -hmm. novel, she reflects that Eddie wants me to keep the house spick and span, transform into a cordon bleu chef, raise a brood of little Parkers, earn Mm -hmm. lots of money. If I'd read the small print in the wedding vows, I'd have eaten my ovaries before letting him anywhere near me. The expectations that people bring into marriages can be so different sometimes. What do you think goes into creating a happy and successful marriage? These questions. So, (laughs) I mean, well, you can answer this just as as well as me, but I do think every marriage is different in the way that every single person is different. Um, The ability to compromise and the ability to forgive are absolutely crucial. Um, But if I'm giving advice to young people um, about 
finding partners, I just say, choose the one that makes you laugh the most. That's always been my advice. If you can laugh together and play together and have fun, then you can more easily get over the little irritations of sharing your space with another person, you know, the socks and the coffee rings and whatever. If you can laugh about stuff, then you, I think you've got a better chance than most. But tell me, what are your tips on a healthy marriage then, both of you? I would say top is communication. If you can't yeah. communicate, everything else will go to the wayside. And now for like my generation and younger generations, I would have to say screen free time, do things yeah. together that don't involve a screen and put your phone down when you're spending that, whether it's a relationship with a spouse or a friend or whatever, put the phone down. Just put it's, it a down. <laughs> it's a good one. Um, mine would be don't expect them to be a different person than Mm -hmm. what you marry don't expect to want to change them um go in (laughs) knowing exactly who they are and if you don't know who they are you probably need to date longer (laughs) and (laughs) my second bit would be um to always assume good intentions because you know you all kind of have your own stories that are always going through our heads and then if you're you kind of they have their own version of what's happening in your relationship. Yeah. So you kind of have to go in thinking they have my, I have my story. They have their story. Let's really listen to each other and kind of assume that the other person had good intentions when you're That's mad really at them. One. When oh, you're no, mad I love at them. that one. And that can, <laughs> but that can apply in life as well to give people mm. the benef- benef- benefit of the doubt and just uh, yeah. approach them positively rather than being suspicious. That's a great one. Yeah. I love this. Like, so we're, we're going to make this a monthly thing, right? In your question. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm up for that. So as we touched on, this book is ultimately an ode to female friendship. Through the good and the bad, our female friends can lift us up, encourage us, or tell us when we are doing something wrong. The bonds between these women were strong and beautiful, and I really appreciate reading about their connection. What do you think would have happened to Dottie, Jane, Peggy, and Winifred if they did not have each other? or friends like each other? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I I kind of beefed up the friendship between the four of them because I really felt that Dottie needed female friendship. In fact, in her life, I mean, she did have a sister, Helen, who was a presence at certain times. And um, in the 1930s, she met Lillian Hellman, the playwright, who went on to be a close friend of hers the end of her life. I don't know how much they saw each other towards the end, but certainly she was around. But mostly Dottie had male friends, and I think that might have been part of her problem. Personally, I think we all need our, all women need their girlfriends. Um, Jane would have survived anywhere, you know, she'd, after the Holocaust, you know, the the world comes to an end, she would have survived. (laughs) um, um, Yeah, Winifred needs women. She's a woman's woman, I think and uh, Peggy too. So yeah, no, I mean, I think they're all looking at what they achieved. Each each one of them was a really strong, independent person, and they would have managed. But um, yeah, they just managed a bit better together. Yeah, I think we all um, need those people in our lives. Like Ashley's my person um, mm-hmm. that I can oh. go to. <laughs> and uh, everyone needs that person. And um, especially that female yeah. bond. For I sure. 
So at various points in the novel, Dottie's friends note the paradoxical sides to her character. As Peggy describes, Dottie had that poor little match girl look with her round soulful eyes as if pleading with the world to rescue her, which made for an odd combination with her guillotine sense of humor. (laughs) If you had to describe our four main characters in two words, those two words being their central contradictive traits, what would they be? Contradictive traits. Well, Dottie, obviously, she's fragile, but she could also be very, what's the right word, cutting? Um, Yeah, bitchy almost. Um, Yes, and a genius as well, but that's three. Um, Jane, very courageous, certainly, and doesn't suffer fools at all. She's impatient with people. I don't know if that's courageous and impatient or opposites, but nearly. Um, Peggy, I think, is clever and self-doubting as well. So these are not quite opposites either. Winifred is kind of an opposite because she shrinks from the, the limelight and yet she's an actress. So a shy actress, is the, that's the opposites in her character, I guess. It's so hard to describe anybody in two words, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> yes. I don't think I quite managed it in two words there, but <laughs> close enough. <laughs> so Renifred loves her home as it is her safe haven from the world. She reflects that she likes closing the front door behind her, putting on some music and running a hot tub. Her home was her sanctuary where she could relax without worrying about being on show. What room in your home is your sanctuary and how do you create that environment? Well, I'm talking to you at the moment from my office which is just lined on two walls floor to ceiling with books and I get a lot of security from being completely surrounded by books like that I love it I've also got a little roof terrace where I've got um, plants and comfy seat and a very nice view and but at the moment we can't go out there because it's so hot in London (laughs) I have to stay indoors in front of fans at the moment but my real sanctuary is um, I swim in a pond every day and year round and it's just a short walk away from here and that's the place where that's just like being back in the womb or something it's just so gorgeous and surrounded by nature and kingfishers and herons and plants it's absolutely lovely so that's my real inner peace place I love that and I know our listeners cannot see but your library behind you is so beautiful (laughs) (laughs) it's even got the ladder like it's just incredible I have a ladder yeah yeah I need a ladder (laughs) So there are a variety of drinks mentioned throughout the novel, including Pink Ladies, Gimlets, Brandy Alexanders, Sidecars, and more. It is only fitting to ask, what is your favourite drink? My favourite drink is champagne and probably Bollinger. I'm not much of a spirits drinker, but my summer drink is the Aperol Spritz because about 10 years ago, my partner and I went to Venice and I saw people, you know, locals sitting after work in bars, having these little flutes full of a bright orange drink. And I asked a waitress to bring me one of them without even asking her what it was. I thought, oh, I need to try this. And it's just so bright and refreshing and delicious that I now have it as my summer drink. Um, And it brings back all these memories of our holiday in Venice as well. I love that. I love the more like refreshing ones too. Um, Not super into ones that made me feel bloated like I know that's different but like beer 
Oh, no, it's no, I don't drink blended. beer. And if um, I drank a martini, I would just fall over and be useless <laughs> and not be able to talk to anybody anymore. It's just way too strong. I'm a bit of a lightweight. <laughs> but so, I seem to be able to manage plenty of champagne. So <laughs> I also like champagne. What about you, Ashley? Whiskey. I don't drink very oh, often, but whiskey. a whiskey sour, like a whiskey Ooh. sour. Um, is sophisticated. My- I but I can I can only have one because I don't know how I ever did it in my 20s I I cannot hold any of it now (laughs) Mm. no me too so there are so many amazing places mentioned in the Manhattan girls that are quintessentially 1920s New York such as the gonk Tony's and the Savoy Ballroom if you could pick one place to visit in 1920s New York where would you want to go most and why Oh, it would definitely have to be the Algonquin. Um, to, you know, if I could walk in and have a glimpse and sit down and join them at the table, that would just be the most extraordinary experience. I haven't been there yet. My nephew was out in March and he managed to take photographs of my book at various spots around the hotel. <laughs> so that was very good of him. And I've promised to take my editor for a cocktail at the Algonquin next time I'm in New York. But I don't yet know when that will be. I hope it's soon. That would be so cool. I would love to see that. Mm. So are you able to tell us anything about what you are currently working on? Well, I did. I delivered another novel at the end of June, but I don't announce what the next one is going to be until I've finished publicising the current one, because otherwise, I, I don't know about anybody else, I get really confused. Although a lot of your questions in this interview have kind of I found myself in my head answering them with regard to the next novel because there is a bit of overlap. Um, It's set in New York, London and Paris in the 1920s and 1930s mainly. So some of the same themes come up, but quite different people. And uh, yes, um, I'd love to be talking to you about that one next year. I hope so. We would love to. Yeah, you're going to be an annual tradition. (laughs) That would be great. Thank you so much. I mean, I know how much work. Goodness, your questions today, you were on fire. (laughs) They're amazing. I can't can't get over them. Thank you so much for putting all that work into, you know, reading the book and coming up with such amazing questions. And I know you've got a lot of technical stuff that you've now got to do before you put the podcast up. So I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you so much. We're honored and we just loved your book. And we just had a lot of questions because you wrote a really great book. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. You can find Jill's book, Manhattan Girls, along with all of her other novels and where books are sold. If you would like to keep up to date with Jill, visit her on her website at www.jillpaul.com, on Instagram at at jill.paul1, and on Twitter at at jillpaulauthor. All links will be provided in the show notes. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please leave us a review. It really helps. Also, don't forget to visit us on Instagram to continue the conversation, be notified of bonus episodes, and keep up to date with what we are currently reading. We put up new episodes every other Friday.